Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds." Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Father, as we contemplate these words of our Lord Jesus, we pray that we might discern their truth and encouragement, or that we might see the invitation that is present here to us to join with Christ in rejoicing. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. Justified by her deeds. That is not a very promising text for Reformation Sunday. And it actually gets worse. Because that word translated in English as deeds is the Greek word ergon, where we get ergonomics from, and it is literally the word for works, justified by works. And if you're thinking, okay, yes, but probably the word translated here as justified is not the same Greek word that we translate as justified when we talk about justification by grace through faith, actually, it is exactly the same word. Wisdom, Jesus says, is justified by her deeds, by her works. Now, saving grace for us, if you will, in this passage is context. What is Jesus talking about when he says justified? Jesus means justified in the sense of vindicated or proven right. He's saying that wisdom will be proven right by her deeds, or another way of putting it might be by her results. A way that we might say this, an equivalent phrase would be the proof is in the pudding, or the results speak for themselves. You may be critical of the message, but the truth and the wisdom of this message will be demonstrated by its results, by its fruits. That's what Jesus is saying. The question is, what result is he talking about? What deed is it that Jesus has 
in mind? What deed is going to vindicate the wisdom of his message? Now, in order to answer that question, to figure that out, we're going to have to do a couple of things. First, we're going to have to think about child's play. We're going to have to think about how a children's game can teach us about repentance and rejoicing. And then once we've done that, we're going to see what Jesus has to teach us about being winsomely reformed. And finally, at the end, we're going to take a little bit of time out for a dance lesson. I'm going to try to teach you how to dance the Geneva jig. So you have something to look forward to at the end of the sermon. But let's start with child's play. Because in child's play, Jesus finds a metaphor, an image, for the call to repentance that John gave, for the call to rejoicing that Jesus gave, and also for the rejection of those calls by Israel. He says, you're like children in the marketplaces calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Scholars say that Jesus is referring to a kind of game that children would play, although it sounds a little bit more like a taunt than a game, but it involved calling out to one another, basically invitations to join in the activity and a little bit of a rebuke to their petulant playmates when they refuse to respond and join them. They're, they're playing a happy song. They're pretending to celebrate a wedding. They're playing the flute and saying, let's dance. And then If you won't do that, they play a sad song, a dirge, a song of mourning. If you don't want to do a wedding, hey, let's do a funeral. And you don't want to join in and play with us at the funeral either. There's a comparison here, a metaphor. Some people even say a parable. If you're looking uh, for the parables of Jesus, oftentimes even a, a phrase like this is seen as a kind of parabolic statement. It's an analogy. Jesus is comparing those petulant children who refuse to play, no matter what game is proposed to them, to those who reject the kingdom message, no matter what form it comes to them in. When John the Baptist comes and proclaims the message of repentance, they say he's too harsh for them. John is too unsociable. He's too not of this world. Like, he's a wilderness guy with a weird diet. We can't relate to this hard message that he's giving. And so Jesus comes in gentleness. Jesus comes very sociable. Jesus comes and he dines with sinners. And they say, well, actually, maybe he's too gentle. Maybe he's too sociable. Maybe Jesus is a little bit too of this world, if you know what I mean. And they reject him as well. Jesus is saying, we played a funeral song for you. We urge you to mourn in repentance for your sins, and you refused. So we played a wedding song for you, and we urge you to dance and celebrate in the coming of the bridegroom, and you refused. Which makes me think the problem isn't us. It's you. It's you. You won't play no matter what game is proposed. You won't dance with us no matter what music we play to you. Your stubborn refusal reveals the hardness of your heart. You won't mourn and you won't dance because inside you've hardened yourself. That's what Jesus is saying to the people who reject and resist the proclamation of the kingdom. He also says some hard things to the cities where he's been ministering. The places that have witnessed his great works, he gives woes to them like an Old Testament prophet would. Words of warning and condemnation. 
that signal that the rejection, the resistance all around is resulting in a realignment, a shift from the physical to the spiritual. He calls out these cities where his ministry is taking place, Capernaum and, and, and Bethsaida and Chorazin. These are all clustered together. They're, they're the base of operations for this phase of his ministry. They're witnessing what's happening in Jesus' life. The same signs that we already saw him refer John the Baptist to as evidence that he is the Messiah. They're seeing these things firsthand, and they're rejecting the king. They're rejecting the kingdom. And so they get a little Old Testament-style prophecy. Now, these woes make explicit something we saw implicitly in Matthew 10. Remember when Jesus said, if they reject you, then you should uh, shake the dust off your uh, sandals? And move on. And I said that that suggests that he's telling them they should treat parts of Israel that reject the king as if they were godless heathen country, because that's what you did when you had to travel through uh, non Israelite territory. Once you had walked through that land, you ritually shook off the dust from your sandals to symbolize that you were leaving behind that godless place. The implication being that that the places in Israel that reject Christ are like those godless places. Well, here he states that out in the open. The cities of Israel that reject the Messiah, the Anointed One, are to be regarded as godless pagan country. They've witnessed his works, and they've still rejected him. And that makes them not as bad as Tyre and Sidon, the Phoenician cities, not as bad as Sodom, which was famously destroyed, but actually worse than those places. Because Jesus says, if they had had the advantages, the privilege that you've had to witness what you've witnessed, they would have repented. Even Sodom, if it had seen what you've seen, would have repented. But you remain hardened. Harder than Sodom. That's what he's saying. You know more than they do, and yet you're more hardened than they were. Now, in the Old Testament, it wasn't unusual to have these prophetic statements, woe to this place, woe to that place, Tyre and Sidon. They got woes in the Old Testament. But that distinguished the nations from Israel. Like the woes were reflected to, as it were, the the, the nations who reject God and the blessings received by the nation that followed him. But now, these New Testament woes of Jesus are being directed at Israelites who reject the anointed king. And they unite those Israelites who reject Jesus with the nations that have already been under condemnation. Just as in the ministry to the Gentiles, the believers from the nations will be united with those who believe in Israel. The old physical categories, the physical map is being rewritten And now spiritual realities are emerging. And Jesus is saying it doesn't matter what tribe you're from. If you reject the anointed king, you're you're over there. You're with them. And it doesn't matter where you were born or where you're from. If you receive the kingdom, you're over here with the people of God. And when he says they would have not just repented, but repented in sackcloth and ashes, sackcloth and ashes are are things that you wear 
uh, they symbolize mourning. So it actually connects this act of repentance to the dirge that we saw being played earlier in the game. The wedding and the funeral music rejected by the children is a kind of parallel to the call to death to sin of repentance and the wedding feast of life to come. And woe to those who reject the repentance of John. Woe to those who reject the rejoicing of Christ. But wisdom to those who turn to Christ in joy. It is Reformation Day, and what Reformation Day would be complete without a pretty long passage from John Calvin. I have one for you. It's especially good, talking about the the two ministries of John and Jesus, the contrasts between them and what they have in common. Calvin writes, Leading an austere life, John the Baptist thundered out repentance and severe reproofs and sung, as it were, a plaintive song while the Lord endeavored by a cheerful and sprightly song to draw them more gently to the Father. Neither of these methods had any success. And what reason could be assigned except their hardened obstinacy? This passage also shows us why so wide a difference existed as to outward life between Christ and the Baptist, though both had the same object in view. Our Lord intended by this diversity and by assuming, as it were, a variety of characters to convict unbelievers more fully, since while he yielded and accommodated himself to their manners, he did not bend them to himself. But if the men of that age are deprived of every excuse for repelling with inveterate malice a twofold invitation which God had given them, we too are held guilty in their persons." For God leaves not untried any sort of pleasing melody or of plaintive and harsh music to draw us to himself, and yet we remain hard as stones. When you think about Jesus' words, calling out, as it were, this generation, it's important to realize this point that Calvin draws out, that this generation is representative of, of us. Jesus isn't doing the thing that, sorry millennials, is often done to millennials, right? Called out, what's wrong with kids these days? I realize millennials aren't kids anymore, but, but we're constantly being told what's wrong with the younger generation, how they have no sense of responsibility, duty, whatever. They have these huge uh, senses of entitlement, that sort of thing. It's not like Jesus saying, you know what's wrong with this generation? They just don't listen. This generation is representative of people now, in this age, the age from John the Baptist to now that Jesus already talked about. The characteristic of people in this age of the proclamation of the kingdom can be summed up as impenetrable hardness. The resistance, the rejection of the message, no matter what form it takes, whether it comes in that prophetic form of John the Baptist or in that gentle invitation of Jesus, the hardness with which it's met is the problem with us. And what Calvin is saying is because of this diversity, because we've heard the call, both harshly and gently, and turned a blind eye to it all, hardened ourselves to it all, we stand condemned without excuse. That's the point that Jesus is making. I've I've played the music. I've called you to dance. 
and you've refused out of hardness. As we reflect on both the ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus, there's also a lesson that we can learn as Reformed Christians about how it is we ought to live our faith. Jesus has something to teach us about being winsomely Reformed. There's a bit of a debate over how to be Reformed, what the right way in this culture is to embody our faith. And a word that's often used, strange as it seems, is winsome. Uh, I'll give a little bit of an explanation of that in a moment, but I want you to hear something from one of the, the, the guys writing on this controversy recently. This is Michael Kruger. He's uh, from Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, the president now, I think, of that seminary. He says, there's been a lot of discussion in the last year, in the last week, of what it means to be winsomely reformed, and sadly, the loudest voices have been undeniably against the idea of being winsome. It has been critiqued as wishy-washy, a failed cultural strategy, or as an expression of weakness rather than strength. He adds the word winsome is just a way of summarizing uh, the teachings of Scripture and how we ought to live our lives. He cites Colossians 3, Mark 10, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 3, 2 Timothy 2, and Galatians 5, all examples of the fruit of the Spirit and how we should live essentially as Christ did, following Christ's example. In more modern terms, he says, to be winsomely reformed is to be reformed, but not boorish, curmudgeonly, or quarrelsome. The concern is not just that we hold firmly to historic Reformed theology, but that we do so with a posture of grace, warmth, and respect, especially with those we disagree with, or as I might say, with whom we disagree. That's the idea. Not being uh, like irritating, bombastic, and judgmental, even though you believe in the truth of what you're saying, but instead embodying that truth with grace, with warmth, and with respect other people. And that way of living the faith is oftentimes criticized, especially now, as an ineffective way, as a not sufficiently bold or even hard way of pursuing this faith. If you're tempted to think that might be right, you should hear these words of Calvin. Calvin, when he describes the difference between John the Baptist and Jesus' approach, says that those who think that the highest perfection consists in outward austerity of life, and you pronounce it to be an angelical life when a person is abstemious or mortifies himself by fasting, ought to attend this passage. On this principle, John would rank higher than the Son of God. If we're going to follow Jesus, in other words, we might learn from the way that he embodied this faith of ours in the presence of of sinners. And when I first entered our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America in 2003, and encountered that term winsomely reformed, I was not a fan of the term because I was an English major and I thought we should use words that are sort of elegant and meaningful and not prissy and Victorian sounding. And winsome to me is one of those words. Like I've never used the word winsome without needing to explain what that means. If anything, it sounds like wincing. And I do wince a little when I hear the word winsome. And yet I was in love with the idea that it conveyed. As I mentioned in Sunday school this morning, I grew up with fundamentalism, but capital F fundamentalism, where you actually called it fundamentalism, and it wasn't just your enemies saying that you were one of those. And what I saw was a lot of people like me 
discovering the Reformed faith, embracing Reformed theology, but keeping fundamentalist culture. Not allowing their culture, the way that they lived, to be changed by the theology that they had embraced. It was my belief then, and remains my belief now, that a theology of grace must create a culture of grace, or we're not living the things we claim to believe. To put it more simply, you can't just adopt Jesus' goals and then pursue them any way you want. You have to do the, uh, pursue them in Jesus' ways. You have to do things the way Jesus did them, in other words. So you're not going to hear me use the word winsome very often, and yet I try to live out my faith winsomely, and I encourage you to do the same. Not because I think it will win more people over, not because I think it's just nicer to be that way. If you know me, you know I'm not too worried about being nice. It's because for every Christian it is essential to remain anchored to the cross, It is essential that our faith be centered on Christ and the example of Christ. And if he called people to rejoicing, if he called them to dance, we have to do the same. Now, there's not an either or here. It's not either the mourning of repentance or the rejoicing of faith. It's both. Calvin doesn't say, well, John the Baptist got it wrong and Jesus got it right. Jesus certainly, when he's talking about John the Baptist, doesn't say, well, you know, the problem with John the Baptist is he's just too harsh. No, of course, there's a place for both of those things. And we do see Jesus saying some hard things. But if we're going to follow Jesus, oftentimes we're going to find ourselves erring on the side of grace and seeking to embody the same graciousness that he showed. There's no conflict between those two ministries, and neither of them was intended as an effective ministry strategy. As we've already seen, what they were intended to do was illustrate just how difficult the problem of human hardness is. When you reject the hard austerity of that voice in the wilderness, and then you turn around and reject that gentle and gracious invitation to the table that we find in Jesus, you demonstrate the petulant hardness of your heart. That rejection proves that the wisdom you're operating with is man's wisdom, not God's. The Bible has a word for man's wisdom. It's not a kind word. It's foolishness. In our deeds, we reveal our wisdom. In our rejection of the kingdom, we reveal the fact that we are foolish. But when we turn when we repent, when we receive the kingdom, another message is sent. Another kind of wisdom is vindicated. But if you accept the kingdom, the credit doesn't go to the ministry strategy that drew you in, whether it was a hard one or a gentle one. The credit doesn't go to your own merit that you made the right choice, whatever the message was. Rather, the credit goes to the Spirit's work. And it is the work of the Spirit in bringing about repentance that vindicates the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is justified by the deed of repentance that is done in the lives of believers. But that's the work of the Spirit, demonstrating the wisdom of the message of Christ. 
Which brings us to our dancing lesson. We're going to learn how to dance the Geneva jig. Calvin, as you already heard, when he describes the message of Jesus, he calls it a cheerful and sprightly song. Sprightly is also a little bit archaic, like winsome, but sprightly I like. And I like the idea that the gospel as Jesus proclaimed it was pretty sprightly. And that idea of the sprightliness of the gospel influenced everything that happened in Calvin's Geneva, including the writing of the music that became the Genevan Psalter. There was a sprightliness to these tunes as they sang the psalms together in worship. In fact, some people thought it was a little too sprightly. Queen Elizabeth I famously condemned the Genevan Psalter. She showed her contempt for it by referring to it as a bunch of Geneva jigs. Now, I'm not an expert on dance. This may surprise you. I had to do a little research, but it turns out a jig is a lively and festive dance. According to the internet, if you are dancing a jig, you will spend a lot of time hopping and kicking and shuffling your feet, sort of associated with like Irish or Scottish dancing, something a little bit like that, which reminds me of a dance From the Old Testament a little bit, the dance of King David, when he danced before the Ark of the Covenant as it was returned to Jerusalem. We read in 2 Samuel 6 that David was leaping and dancing before the Lord. And he too was criticized by a queen. He too was regarded as undignified in his actions, but he didn't repent of them, he persisted. He said, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. If you think that was undignified, he says to his wife, just wait and see how I will dance in the presence of God. As he preaches on that moment, Charles Spurgeon says, David justified what he had done by God's choice of him. And then he adds, Dear brethren, there is a great power in the truth of election when a man can grasp it, when he knows for himself truthfully and by indisputable evidence that the Lord has chosen him. Then he breaks forth in songs of divine adoration and praise. Then is his heart lifted up, and he pays homage to God, which others would not think of paying, and maybe even he dances a little Geneva jig. He celebrates, he rejoices, as he has been called to do by his Savior. It's astonishing to me and very encouraging that Jesus would frame his message of the kingdom in these terms. He frames the gospel call as an invitation to dance. Whether it's the mournful funeral march of repentance or the joyous dance of marriage, he is calling us with the music that he plays to join him in the procession. To those who refuse to mourn their sin or to rejoice in Christ, you need to hear the music and start dancing. You need to hear the music that Jesus is playing and join him. Accept his invitation. Enter into that joy. To those of you who mourn your sin and still refuse to rejoice, you too need to hear the music. You too need to hear what Jesus is saying and join him in the dance. It's undignified sometimes to celebrate and praise him. It's crazy in the eyes of the world 
to do this. And yet, that is the joy that he has called us to. Like that deed of his and bringing us to him should spark a kind of joy within us that leads us to want to join him and to dance. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast. 